my brackets because they're in desperate need of healing uh, right now. For those of you that follow college basketball and March Madness, which somehow is not an encouragement at all. Uh, let me say before we get started, Rich was supposed to preach today and uh, he is still recovering. And uh, his family is uh, still sick. Teresa is uh, particularly sick, battling a sinus infection. So I would ask that you please uh, continue to keep them in your prayers. Be praying for them. Encourage them. Uh, I know he's been real frustrated with how this is sort of drug out and, and kept him from being here with us. So I would ask that you would uh, do that. The... Uh, we're in the Old Testament book of Zechariah today, and uh, we're not going to do the whole book. It's 14 chapters. Um, but uh, I am going to read from a very key verse right near the end of the book uh, in Zechariah. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Zechariah, it is the second to last book in the Old Testament. So you can go to Matthew and then go back to your left a couple of books, and uh, you should be able to find it right about there. And you want to do that. Near the end of uh, the book of Zechariah, we read this uh, just wonderful phrase from the Lord. And he says, I will put this third of my people into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them and I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful book hidden away near the end of the Old Testament. Oh, Lord, this great book that teaches us in dramatic visions about the character and the promises of God. And Lord, I pray that we would learn some of those lessons this morning and uh, that we would be able to say with uh, full conviction and assurance that the Lord is my God. Do this for each one of us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I was reading this week about Steinway pianos. And uh, Steinway, as you may know, the makers of the world's finest pianos. And uh, each piano is made from scratch. And it takes over a year to make one Steinway grand piano. And uh, the most impressive place in their manufacturing plant is the place where the soundboard is stretched to its maximum tolerance and then allowed to sit for an extended period until it remains in that curved design. And uh, you can think of a grand piano and uh, the design of a grand piano and and they take the soundboard, and this is uh, uh, taken off to a uh, off hidden in the corner part of the plant. And uh, I was reading about this, and I was thinking if the wood was alive, it'd be crying out for mercy. Um, and so after an extended time of stretching, now the wood will never spring back to its original state. It's permanently changed, and the piano is becoming a fine-tuned instrument. And after that process takes place, the next step requires another point of stress. It takes 
11 tons of pressure on a piano to tune it. And we're talking about tuning the wood, uh, not just tuning the strings like a piano tuner uh, does. And each step in the process moves the piano closer to being the finished product that will ultimately be played by the world's finest musicians. And uh, these musicians desire a particular sound that only a piano like this can make. And I was thinking that God looks at each of his people as a fine-tuned instrument. However, we begin as pretty rough wood um, that he desires to transform into gold. And tuning us requires certain experiences that will stretch our faith and stretch our frame and stretch our very life. Sainthood springs out of suffering. And uh, if we can stand the strain of this intense process, we will come forth as gold, as a sweet-smelling offering to our Maker. And when we're in the midst of these times, it can feel like being in the fire. It's painful to be stretched beyond our own perceived limits. But the Lord knows that this is necessary uh, for us to become an instrument that can play a beautiful song that others will seek after. And God has been in the process of fine-tuning uh, the people of Israel in the time of the minor prophets. Uh, he has applied enormous pressure to his people by way of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. He has taken them to their limit of maximum tolerance. They were taken to the back corner of the wood factory, so to speak, and then stretched to the point of being permanently changed. Why? Why has God done this to his people? Because of idolatry. Idolatry uh, from the time of uh, David up until uh, the time of the exile. Uh, idolatry was the great sin that just plagued Israel. You ever have one of those sins that you have to repent of over and over and over again, and you think you beat it, and then it comes back, and the Puritans called them besetting sins, uh, those ones that you just can't seem to shake. And uh, for Israel, their besetting sin was idolatry. As soon as they thought they were over it, it came roaring back. And um, the prophet Hosea showed us that idolatry is really spiritual infidelity. It's being unfaithful to God. And uh, that's a wonderful book. I encourage you uh, to read it. It's a little bit different. And uh, you'll be very thankful that you're not Hosea. Um, and so they followed after these false gods over and over and over again until finally God sent them into exile. And they are different now. They've been permanently changed. They are sadder and they are wiser and after the exile, Israel never worships idols like that again. They have been permanently changed. It's now about 538 B.C. And it's some 400 years after King Solomon. And they're standing there in the shattered capital of Jerusalem. The Babylonians destroyed it, destroyed the temple. It's all rubble and rocks. It's been wrecked. And standing there in the middle is the prophet Haggai. And uh, Haggai has uh, come to preach to these people. 
They have recently returned from 70 years of exile in Babylon, far to the east. And uh, many of those who were listening to Haggai uh, this morning were young people, and they were Babylonian by birth, but Hebrew by heritage. And uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had taken their grandparents and their parents from their homeland to live in Babylon until decades later, some 70 years, when King Cyrus of Persia allowed them to leave, and then King Darius of Persia approved all the resources for rebuilding the temple back in Jerusalem, back home. Home, for most of these people, was Babylon, where they'd been born and where they were raised and where they lived most of their lives. Still a large group of them, but not all, became enthusiastic about returning to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. And they remembered the stories of the promised land that their grandparents had told them. And they longed for Jerusalem, and they ached for Jerusalem, and they sang about Jerusalem. We're going to learn one of those songs. Where's Dave? Hey! All right. You're ready. Uh, We're going to learn one of those songs, and you know this song because you already read it this morning. It comes from our responsive reading in Psalm 137. It comes from the first verse. And uh, it's called, By the Waters of Babylon. And you want to start us? By the waters of water of Babylon, we lay down and wept and wept for thee, Zion. We remember thee, remember thee, remember thee, Zion. Okay, it's a sad song. It's not a happy song. They're in exile. They're aching for Jerusalem. So I want everyone to sing this time. You're in exile. You're one of the Hebrews. You're in Babylon. You're eating funny food. You're wearing funny clothes. You're not Marcy, so you're not getting it, you know. And, uh, and you've heard of these stories for your whole life of Jerusalem. And it's just breaking your heart. And you want to go back to Jerusalem. So let's sing this song all together. By the waters, the waters of Babylon, we lay down and wept and wept for thee, Zion. We remember thee, remember thee, remember thee, Zion. Good job. All right. It is kind of a sad song. It's a song of exile. Thank you, our wonderful banjo player. It's a song of desperately wanting to go home. And I don't know if you've ever felt that. You've been somewhere, maybe you've been traveling on business, or you've been on vacation, and you just get to a certain point, a certain day, and you're like, you know, I'm ready to go home. And they've been that way for probably 69 years. They want to go home. And that song came, as I said, from our responsive reading, Psalm 137, uh, verse 1. By the waters of Babylon, 
There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. You can hear sort of the, uh, the desperation and the sorrow in this psalm. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. And that's been their prayer, and that's been their song. And now, 70 years later, and King Darius is letting them go home. And so many of them packed up and left, and they headed west to a new land that had occupied their hearts and their minds for years. They tramped through the desert for weeks, and they finally crested that last hill. So the longed-for city of Jerusalem came into view. And there it lay as broken as it was 70 years earlier when the Babylonians leveled the place. They came over the hill at last to see Jerusalem, their ancient home, their highest joy, the city of God, and it's a charred rubble, blackened stones, and burned wood. And it's a sight that filled their heart with despair. It was a sight that just looked hopeless. And so the Jews come over that last hill and they sort of plod into Jerusalem without a lot of fanfare. And most of them have never seen it before. And they're looking around. And it's like, what a mess. We've got to clean this up. We have to rebuild the city. We have to rebuild the walls. We have to rebuild the temple. This is going to be really hard. We have the book of Ezra to thank for this part of the story. In Ezra, we read how Cyrus, king of Persia, invites the exiles of uh, Israel to return home for a particular purpose, and that purpose is to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So that's why they return, to rebuild the temple. So a lot of people return. They start the work. And by 536 B.C., which has been a long time, they have now laid the foundation for the temple. They've laid the foundation. But they experience quick and fierce opposition to rebuilding the temple uh, from all the surrounding peoples. And the project just grinds to a halt. It's too tough. We've worked all these years. We got the foundation in, but that's all we can do. And it's sort of put on hold. And the blueprints sit gathering dust on a shelf, and nothing happens for 14 years and enter the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And so what do we know about these guys? What do we know about Zechariah in particular? These are some amazing prophets. Zechariah is one of the men known as the minor prophets tucked away at the end of the Old Testament. And they bring a message from God and let the people know what is really going on. And these books chip away at our hard hearts and reveal our lack of mercy and scrutinize our faith and they confront us with powerful themes of the sovereignty of God and God's constant love and forgiveness and our need for faith and repentance and God's demand that we listen to his word and take it seriously. Well, if you remember the context, 
two really horrible things have happened in the Holy Land. The northern kingdom of Israel, to whom Amos and Hosea preached, lost their power and fell to Assyria, uh, the people that Jonah went to, uh, back in 722 B.C., almost uh, 200 years earlier. And Israel's people are deported. The ten tribes of Israel get sent off by the Assyrians, and they're never heard from again. Gone. Out of the history books, out of the Bible. And then about 590 B.C., about 130 years later, Babylon, under King Nebuchadnezzar, descends upon the southern kingdom of Judah and levels Jerusalem, just as Micah and Joel had warned them. And they basically ignored the prophets and said, hey, we're Jerusalem, we got the temple, we got the ark, we're golden, we're good, nothing will happen to us. Au contraire. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and says, I don't know about those guys, uh, but I want this land and I'm the big guy on the block. So he got it. It was a terrible conquest. It was a three-year siege of starvation, rape, pillage, and plunder. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people were killed. And after three long years of destruction, the lucky ones, those who survived, were sent off into exile in 580 B.C., 586 B.C. And while they were in exile, they heard from Daniel and Ezekiel, two of the prophets with the most apocalyptic visions about the future, spoke to them while they're in exile. And while they're there, they claim the promises of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, who was a pre-exilic, a, a prophet before the exile, uh, he told them in Jeremiah 29, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, so they're going to be in exile for 70 years, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. That is a driving verse of the nation-state of Israel today. And they have a law of return based on the prophet Jeremiah that if you're a Jew in any other country to be faithful to their scriptures, you're allowed to come to Israel. Based on this passage. But this passage was written before the exile. They come to the exile. It's specifically written to those group of people. And so they're led by the governor, Zerubbabel, great Bible name. I love the name Zerubbabel. So, you know, just sort of pushing for all those of you who will be expecting the future. I'm getting a lot of, no, not happening. Um, it's a great name. I've only met one person by that name, Zerubbabel Isaac. He went by the initial Z-I. Great name. And the priest Joshua. They lead the people, the exiles, to return to Jerusalem. They begin this work, rebuilding the temple. They lay the foundation, then they quit. Fourteen years, no work is done. The foundation lays there. And they had received all this opposition from the Samaritans. And so the Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Samaritans threatened to attack them. The Samaritans are sort of a hybrid people created by the exile. When they took off all the Jews, they brought in Assyrians and mixed them with a few Jews that were there. 
and sort of created this new ethnic group called Samaritans. Of course, we know the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, so we have sort of a good connotation of that word. The Jews hated that story because uh, they hated the Samaritans, and Jesus used their hated people uh, as the good guy, and they didn't like that. So Jesus told that wonderful story, and they all got mad. But the Samaritans were threatening them. They quit. The, the temple's not being uh, built. And after a while, they kind of forget what they were doing there, why they'd been allowed to return, what Darius had told them to do. And apathy sets in, and, and they forgot what their goal was. So in 520 B.C., God sent them two men. And we read about this in Ezra. It says, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, uh, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So Haggai and Zechariah sort of function as tag team prophets. You can get that image. You know, this is, uh, uh, you know, worldwide prophecy. So these are the tag team prophets. And... Uh, their books couldn't be more different. Haggai is uh, practical. His book is about be strong and work hard. He's that kind of guy. He's out in the dirt. He's measuring the foundation for the temple. Zechariah is full of visions for the future. He has his head in the air, literally. He is entirely visionary. Well, Haggai is entirely practical. And yet they're both speaking uh, for the same God to the same people at the same time concerning the same problem. In their own manner, they both managed to speak to us today. So today we're learning from Zechariah. He is the longest, Zechariah is the longest of the minor prophets. You could say he's the major minor prophet. Um, his book is the most difficult to understand. Uh, and since it's difficult, we're going to look just at the first six chapters today. He has a number of visions in these chapters. They all come to him in one night. And... Uh, we call them the night visions of Zechariah because he says they came to me in the night. And just what we call them. And most of the language he uses here is apocalyptic language, which by now you should be fairly familiar with as we've been working through uh, Daniel and Thessalonians and Revelation um, now for about six months. And uh, he uses a lot of symbolic language about the end times. It closely resembles the language that we find in Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation. But the main difference between those apocalyptic books and this one is that Daniel and Ezekiel were in exile in Babylon when they wrote. John was in exile on the island of Patmos when he wrote. But Zechariah is right here in Jerusalem. So this is the only book of apocalyptic visions given in Israel itself. The last part, the second half of the book, the last part, is about the Messiah. And Zechariah has more messianic prophecies than all of the other minor prophets combined. He has more messianic prophecies than all of the Old Testament uh, prophets, all the other Old Testament prophets, with the sole exception of Isaiah. So this is a really important book. This is a really interesting book. Now, Haggai's been preaching for about two months when Zechariah shows up. Um, the dates don't correspond exactly. Our best estimate is, is Haggai started preaching about 
the beginning of September, uh, what we would call September. And now Zechariah comes to the people roughly the beginning of November. And uh, these are discouraged, disappointed people. They've got this huge construction project ahead of them, and it's a project they've been putting off for 14 years. Those of you who put off your school projects to the last minute, be encouraged, okay? You know, these guys, their, their senior year was the best 14 years of their life. And Zechariah wants to encourage them to get going. But he encourages them by explaining that building the earthly temple is merely a step, an important step, in God's plan for the glorious future that awaits God's people. Now, it's difficult to work uh, messianic prophecies into construction cheers, but that's pretty much what goes on here. So Zechariah begins with the immediate effect of Haggai's preaching, which must have been pretty good, uh, often happens as a direct result of speaking with God. And so the immediate effect of his preaching is that God's people return to God. God's people return to God. Let's look at the first six verses of Zechariah. And they're going to return right now. Zechariah is going to unfold many rich and comforting promises in both sections of this book. But riches like these are for people who have repented of their sin and are ready to follow God. And for this reason, the book opens with a message calling on the people to return to God and not be like their forefathers who refused to listen to him. Zechariah 1, starting at verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? Well, you know where they are. They're off dead and buried in Babylon. They got sent into exile and they died there. It's sort of a rhetorical question we get there. Your fathers, where, where are they? They didn't hear me. They didn't pay attention to me. Died in exile. He says, And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented. The people here. They repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Now, these verses contain some really key truths that we would do well to get fixed in our minds as we get into the rest of the book. First thing we see is that God judges sin. God judges sin. If there's anything in the history of the minor prophets uh, that should teach these returning exiles and us, it's that God judges sin. For hundreds of years, the people refused to acknowledge this, even though God sent him prophets to warn them. He sent Hosea and Amos to the northern kingdom of Israel. And then he sent Joel, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Isaiah, and Jeremiah to the southern kingdom of Israel. I don't know if they were more stubborn. They needed more prophets. I'm not sure. But he sent a whole bunch of people. And yet, the people continued to go on their merry way, claiming immunity from judgment, 
because they're God's chosen people and they lived in Jerusalem and they had the temple and they had the ark, nothing could happen to us. And yet they're judged and their land is conquered and Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is destroyed and they're sent into exile. And now they've just returned to exile. So this message will hit home. The evidence is right in front of them. God judges sin. They come over the hill. The city's still wrecked. The walls are still down. And the temple is just plain missing. No one could possibly miss this first point. God does what he says. Everything the prophet said would happen came true. Which brings us to a second point, and that's those past judgments are a warning. Past judgments are a warning. A warning from what? A warning to turn from sin and return to God. He's telling them, you've seen with your own eyes what's happened. Don't let that happen to you. Don't be like those earlier generations that gave lip service to God but had no real faith. Don't be like those people that had outward rituals and they had them down pat, but they were far from God on the inside. That warning is just as relevant for us today. There's lots of people that have it together on the outside. But they don't have it together with God on the inside. And they come in here, and they put on a pretense, and they fake it, and they fool us. But nobody's fooling God. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says, Now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We can claim to be Christians and still live as disobedient people. We can master the outward signs of Christianity and be far from God on the inside. We can bluff our way through a worship service without really worshiping. And we can make it look really good while we're being really bad. And that's why we need to keep repenting. And then third uh, lesson we see here is that obedience brings blessing. Obedience brings blessing. Look at verse 3. Thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And that blessing does come to them. Their crops grew, their vines bore fruit, they had enough to live on, but most of all those blessings are spiritual. God was with them. God will stay with them. God will watch over them. Now, all of the reformers, Luther, Calvin, all those guys, they love the book of Zechariah. They all wrote on it extensively. This is one of their favorite books. Martin Luther, Martin Luther has all the best quotes, like in church history. And uh, if you're a Monty Python fan, most of those have been ripped off from Martin Luther. <clears throat> So that's true. At Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, the Lutheran Seminary, they have an annual Monty Python film fest and see who can get the most Luther quotes out of the movies. True story. I mean, I, th I don't know if they're still doing that, but they did that for a while. But Martin Luther wrote about this. He said, this then is the brief outline of this first sermon of Zechariah. He first wishes to make the people pious and God-fearing by means of threats and promises. And he offers them the example of their fathers. For while they are to build the temple in the city of Jerusalem and do good deeds like these, 
He first wants them to be pious so that they might not think that God would be satisfied with their work of building the temple and the city as their fathers had thought that was good enough for them and if they sacrificed. No, my good man. Rather than all good works, he wants faith and a heart converted to him. That's what he's interested in. This must come first and be preached first. Return to me, and after that, build me a temple. Not first build me a temple, and after that, return to me. Good works inflate us and make us proud, but faith and conversion humble us and make us despair of ourselves. God doesn't want us to trust in ourselves even when we're doing what he's asked us to do, whether it's building a temple or going to church. Obedience brings blessings, but we don't trust our obedience, we trust God. Even good things like religious activity can lead us astray. So the first message is to return to God. That's pretty much what the apostle uh, Peter says, 1 Peter 2, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So after this first crucial message, Zechariah relates a series of visions that he's had from God. And the message of these visions is that God restores his people. God restores his people in the future. It's very hard to interpret visions. In some ways, they're like dreams, and they can be clear analogies. I mean, this one thing in the vision means this one thing in the future reality, and you can draw a parallel. But that's uncommon. Most ways, they're like uh, parables. The entire vision is a story with one main point. And all that's just to say you've got to be extremely careful with visions in Scripture or it can get really goofy real fast. There's a popular series out on the end times which serve as a good example of how not to interpret apocalyptic visions in the Bible. Anyway, Zechariah has a series of visions. We're going to look at them very quickly. We're not going to dwell on them or look at them in great detail because I think the main point comes from taking them all together as a package. There's no break. There's eight visions. It's just one right after the other. And they're largely story illustrations so that Zechariah's message is made memorable and vivid to God's people which is exactly why we tell stories to illustrate messages today. <clears throat> because they help people remember. So we're going to take a quick ride through the night visions of Zechariah. We start chapter 1, verse 7. The first vision is a man among the myrtles. Very simply, this vision tells us that God dwells among his people. God is with them, his love for them is strong, his mercy is great. The uh, myrtle trees are a common Old Testament image uh, representing Israel. And the man is identified in verses 11 and 12 as the angel of the Lord. And you always say that with kind of a hushed voice. The angel of the Lord. That is a technical title that appears in key places in the Old Testament.
loudly. <coughs> and I was worried about this. It'll eventually come back. But the angel of the Lord, and I have a hushed voice, um, <laughs> is a technical title. It appears in many places, key places, in the Old Testament. And it's normally thought to refer to the pre-incarnate Christ. And so when you read in the Old Testament that an angel of the Lord appeared, you're thinking of Jesus before the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity coming to speak to people. Very important. And often it's because we think this because it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to me, and he said, and I said, yes, Lord. And so all the titles of God are then attributed to him. We see this all the way back to Abraham in the Old Testament. And so that's a key phrase when we see that. And now we have spoken content. It's added to the vision. Earlier, Zechariah said that, God said, return to me, I will return to you. And presumably, the people return to God. And now the second half of the promise is being fulfilled. God is returning to his people. That's what he says. And he says that in verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. We saw uh, last week in Revelation 11, it mentions a measuring line. That phrase comes from the book of Zechariah. You're going to see a lot of things here that we see in Revelation. Lots of New Testament parallels to these visions. But this one starts off where there's a man among the myrtles, God is among his people, and we get that promise in the New Testament too, don't we? How does the Great Commission end? Matthew 28, verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Then the last part of chapter 1, we get the second vision, which is four horns and four blacksmiths, or craftsmen. Second vision logically follows the first uh, here, God shows us how he's raised up leaders to terrify and destroy the enemies of Israel. This one's rather easy. It's explained right in the text. Third vision, chapter 2, a man with a measuring line. Like the first two, the third one builds on the earlier ones. It tells us that Jerusalem will grow and prosper and be full of people. They'll trust in God, not in themselves. And it says, Zechariah 2, 5, And I will beat to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Since there's now the presence of God among his people, there is security from enemies on the outside and the glory of God uh, on the inside. And what better security can the people of God have? If he's uh, uh, present, if they have God himself, then there's really no need for walls. And if he's not present, then you can't build a wall big enough. No defense is adequate. His uh, presence is evidenced by his glory, just as it will be in the heavenly Jerusalem where we read at the end of Revelation, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. So far, so good. These visions are great. 
God will dwell among his people. He's got to bless his people. He gives them security. But Zechariah has to be wondering, how can God bless these people after so much sin? After all, he sent them to Babylon. So the fourth vision seems to be the answer to that question. The fourth vision comes to us in chapter 3, and it's cleansing the high priest. So here, Zechariah sees Joshua the high priest standing before God. And as the high priest, he represents the people before God. And as he's carrying out this important function, Satan shows up and accuses him. And as Satan is accusing him, we're told that he's wearing filthy clothes representing his and the people's sin. And Satan must be pointing to these clothes, to these sins, declaring that he is unfit to stand before God. And Satan was right. Joshua and the people were sinful. They were unfit to stand before God. You understand, Satan doesn't have to lie about you. All he has to do is tell the truth about your sin and you're sunk. But here, amazing story, God rebukes Satan. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Notice that God chooses Jerusalem, not the other way around. It's a wonderful picture of God's grace and election, but even more important, a picture of God's grace and salvation. Look at verse 4. The angel said to those standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you your vestments. Our best works are like filthy clothes in God's sight. Our best works are never good enough. So God gives us good clothes. We're clothed with righteousness. The prophet Isaiah says, he has covered me with a robe of righteousness. And the question posed by this vision is, are we clothed in Christ's righteousness and therefore fit to appear before God? Or are we still clothed in the filthy robes of our own righteousness, which makes us unfit to stand before God and ultimately condemns us? Are you going to get to heaven because of what Jesus has done for you? Or are you trying to get there because of what you're doing for yourself? This is the centerpiece and the high point of Zechariah's message. The last four visions essentially replay this message over and over again. These are my people. I am there among them. Yet in them is sin. And because there's sin, there's going to be judgment. And yet because they're my people, there will be grace. So we see those. The next one is uh, a vision, chapter 4, of a lampstand, two olive trees. We see this in Revelation. That's where this symbolism comes from. And God reminds him that he's the one that makes this happen. He says, verse 6, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then there's a promise that, he finish, that he'll finish the work. In verse 9, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. 
God is with you by His Spirit from beginning to end. He gives us a very similar promise in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. What God says, God does. What God starts, God finishes. And then there's three final visions of judgment. There's a flying scroll, a woman in a basket, four chariots. One, the first one is about God's judgment of sin in individual people who disobey God. And then there's a vision of a woman in a basket, people who try to hide their sin, thinking they can hide it from God. That doesn't work. We can hide our sin from each other, but we can't hide it from God. And so God removes those people and sends them back to Babylon. They just came from Babylon. But if you're going to sin and you're going to pretend that you didn't sin, you're going to try to hide it from God, you get a ticket to Babylon. And then there's four chariots, which is God's judgment of sin of all those other nations that oppress God's people. And uh, we see that come back in Revelation as well. And then finally, we get this crowning moment at the end of chapter 6 and crowning the high priests. Technically, this is not a vision, but sort of the conclusion of all eight visions. Joshua, the high priest, is crowned to serve as king and priest. And it's somewhat of a complicated messianic prophecy about Jesus Christ. And every word is important. Verses 12 and 13 says, And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, listen to this carefully, Behold the man whose name is the branch. The same prophecy, this prophecy begins with the Hebrew phrase, Behold the man, the very same words that Pontius Pilate used to present the beaten Christ to the people of Jerusalem. And there represented the humiliation of Christ. And here, the same words are used to show the exaltation of Christ. And we know that according to the book of Hebrews, Jesus serves as the perfect prophet, priest, and king, and he will rule forever and ever. So how do we sum up these six chapters? Well, we know that the centerpiece of Zechariah's vision is a gospel message. God is saying, these are my people, and there I am among them, yet in them is sin. Because of sin, there's judgment, and yet because they're my chosen people, there will be grace. And the New Testament says something very similar. The very last letter to the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 1, he saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me." Follow the pattern of sound words you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. God started it when he chose us before the foundation of the world. God continued it when he saved us by having the Holy Spirit apply the finished work of Christ on the cross to us 
personally cleansing us of our sin and clothing us in Christ's righteousness. God still continues his work in us today by leading us towards holiness, making us more and more in the image of his son as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God will complete it when he returns and finds us confidently waiting for him, trusting in his work and not our own, knowing that we deserve nothing but by his grace we receive everything. That's the message of Zechariah. That's the message of the scriptures. That's the gospel. And all who believe it said, amen, amen. amen. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close. Appreciate your patience uh, with us today and with me in particular. So take a moment to pray, and then I'll close. pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing Jesus to us. Help us to focus on Jesus. Help us to see that God was using the prophet Zechariah to point us to Christ, to give us the gospel, to remind us that we need to live by the gospel every day that we breathe. We are so desperate for your grace. Thank you for giving us far more than we could ever deserve. Cleanse us, call us, make us yours, in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.